let's have a prayer right now and uh, we'll get going with our message. Father, we are just so thankful that we get to be here today, God. You are so good to us. And like your word tells us, uh, uh, there's none other than you. So who could we cry out to, uh, God, because you're the only God that there is. And you have made a way for us through your son, Jesus. You've brought us out of the darkness into the light and called us your children. And also you've called us your friends. Wow. We have a lot to be thankful for. And this morning, uh, Phil has a message that he has prepared from your word. You've put words on his heart for what our people here in Libby, Montana, those of us sitting here, need to hear. So open our hearts and minds, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dean. This past week, preparing for the message, I found myself in unfamiliar territory. Now, when I say unfamiliar, I mean really unfamiliar. In fact, not just unfamiliar, it was uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. I was studying music composition. Now, music is not my first language. It's not my second language. It's not my third language. It's a tough place for me to be, particularly in the realm of music composition. If you were to ask me about my favorite type of music, I would tell you that worship music is my favorite, and and that's the kind of music that inspires my heart. Right behind that is country music. So you take those two things and put them together, that keeps you a long, long ways away from music composition. But still, I found myself there. And it was so unfamiliar and uncomfortable that when Beth was walking past my office at one point, I stopped her to ask her a few questions because I was totally out of my depth. The questions I was asking her put her totally out of her depth, so she didn't know the answers that I was looking for either. So both of us were in unfamiliar, uncomfortable territory. Here's why it was what it was. I was looking at the life of Johann Sebastian Bach. I had stumbled across something in just one of the books that I was reading in preparation that really captured my attention, and then I started chasing all kinds of rabbits out of his life. And I found several different sources backing up the original one. So I don't think this is exaggerated. I don't think it is blown out of proportion. I believe this is probably true. Here's what the original author was saying and several others after him. Bach, when he composed his cantatas, which by the way, there were 256 cantatas written by one man throughout the course of his life. They were written with a passion that still inspires people today. That passion was such that folks believed that he wasn't writing these cantatas from his head, but rather from his heart. And the passion that was contained within all of his scores of music is still grabbing a hold of the hearts of people today. Go, go to a wedding and you'll hear some of Bach's music. Or if you like classical music, just turn it on. You're going to hear Bach's music. But those that have really studied it, believe that he wasn't necessarily writing even from his heart. They believe maybe it was coming from his soul. One writer made this statement. The reason there was such a passion to box music was that each one of his original scores started first as a prayer and then it became a composition. That's why there was so much passion. And here's how they know that it started as a prayer. And this is the part that's really intriguing to me. At the top of every one of his original compositions, there are two initials. They come from the Latin language. Here they are. J, J. Now again, that's not from the English. That is from the Latin. In Latin, the two J's mean 
Jesu Java. Now that's not Jesus coffee for those of you that are getting really excited. In English, Jesu Java means Jesus help me. At the beginning of every one of his compositions, that was his prayer. Jesus help me. And the Lord responded to that prayer, and at the end of each one of his compositions, there would be three other initials, again from the Latin language. Here they are. SDG, which stand for, in Latin, Soli Deo Gloria, or in English, to the glory of God alone. They were sermons. They were messages of his faith, written from his soul, if that author is right beginning in prayer and ending in these beautiful cantatas that Bach wrote for us, each one of them to the glory of God alone. Now, isn't that a great message for your life, to the glory of God alone? If that's how Bach lived, that's what every one of us should be trying to attain, that at the end of our life, which is its own original composition written by God, we should be able to say that we have lived it to the glory of God alone. That should be our goal. That should be our desire and our intent. The Gospel of John was written in such a way that if we were to learn everything that John wanted us to learn through that Gospel, the 21 chapters in it, and apply all of those lessons in our life, at the end of our life, we would be able to say that we lived it to the glory of God alone. It was never about us. It was about God. Our life, the composition written by the Lord, was written to His glory and His alone. The first part of the Gospel of John, those 21 chapters, contain all kinds of lessons coming from Jesus to teach the 12 disciples what this would look like to live to the glory of God alone. And then roughly the last two-thirds of the book contain not only the written lessons but examples of what that looks like coming from Jesus' own hands, His own life. This is what it means to live to the glory of God. God alone. As we get into the 13th chapter of John, I want you to keep this heading in mind, to the glory of God alone. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to that chapter, we're going to jump into some familiar words. If you grew up in Sunday school or you grew up in church, you have heard this passage preached and taught in a number of different ways by different people. It's so familiar that sometimes we miss the things that we should be grabbing hold of. It's so familiar that we will skim over the top of it, just hitting the surface of the passage, rather than getting beneath the surface to pull out some of the wonderful, wonderful truths that are contained here. It is my goal this morning to pull those truths out for you. And I want you to grab hold of that idea of for you. So what I really want you to do is place yourself in the midst of this story. There are 13 people present, Jesus and the 12 apostles. Make yourself the 14th. Put yourself in the middle of the story. Now let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 13, and you'll see why these are so familiar. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is great teaching. It is so familiar to us that, like I said, we might just grab hold of the idea of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then instructing them to go and do the same thing for other people. And that is a great lesson to take from this passage. But there are more, deeper ones. In the familiarity, we might even miss the fact that in the first six verses or so, Jesus is actually laying himself out as the Son of God. He is describing his deity wanting to make sure that they know exactly who he is. And in describing his deity, he is also demonstrating the relationship. That's what's found in that simple little phrase at the end of verse 1, that he loved them to the end. That is a passage or a portion of a passage that describes the relationship that Jesus had with the apostles and with every believer. He loved them to the end. In order to really understand that, you have to pull it apart out of the Greek language, and here's what you would find, that that's the same type of terminology that you would apply to a wedding ceremony. It is a commitment, a covenant love that says he loved them all the way to the end of this life, and what we know about Jesus, it means that he's going to love them on past the end of this life. It is a deeply committed, intimate love relationship demonstrated in things that we see like the wedding ceremony and the vows that set in the middle of the wedding ceremony. How many of you remember the day you were married? Hopefully those of you that are married remember that day well. How many of you remember your vows? Without question or stumbling, you could repeat your vows. There's not very many of you that can, and that's, that's not unusual. So I want to remind you what they look like. I'm going to ask my wife to come up here and join us. I told her this morning that I was going to do this, and the only thing that she had to do, her sole responsibility, is to stare lovingly into my eyes. She does it very well. Here's the marriage vows. This is what they sound like. I, Phil, take you, Tina, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death. With God as my witness, 
I give you my promise. Those are the marriage vows. Now, the ceremony would go on through all kinds of different things until finally you come to the end of it where the preacher, in this case, might be me, would say, Phil, you may kiss your bride. And I'm just kidding. So she's going to go have a seat. Well, those vows are demonstrating the same thing that the Bible was demonstrating when it says that Jesus loved them to the end. A covenant committed relationship. I'm going to stay with you all the way through this. He loved them to the end. For better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness and health, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death in this life. But Jesus says it's going to go on past there. It's that type of covenant. And it is all tied together in the deity of Christ, in understanding who he is, that this is God loving us that way. This is God saying, I have that type of a relationship with you. In order to really understand it, I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there in John chapter 13. But we're going to go to the book of Colossians together, written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to take a speedy trip all the way through this book. Because Paul in the book of Colossians does this amazing job of showing us who we are in Christ and how we are supposed to live in the midst of this covenant relationship. Let's start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This is Paul telling us who Jesus is. He's laying the foundation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's who Jesus is. So he introduces us to him in that very first chapter. But by the time we get to chapter 2 in the book of Colossians, Paul is saying, now here's who you should be in Christ. Listen to this in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." Now see how he's doing this? This is progressive. Here's who Jesus is. Now here's who you are in Jesus. I love what he does in the third chapter. He shows us how we are to be in Christ. Not just who we are to be, but how we are to be. Pick it up in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't that a beautiful progression? And then he wraps it up in chapter 4 this way. Listen to verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's the admonition at the end, to make sure that you are making your relationship with Christ so small that you are praying, listen to how he says it, steadfastly watching in prayer and in thankfulness. Then he goes on to boil it down to control your tongue, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So he takes this broad relationship that begins in the deity of Christ and moves into the heart of every believer so that it can come out as the expression of our relationship, very small. You pray steadfastly all the time and watch your mouth because you are now a reflection of the one you love. You are a reflection of the one who loves you. So Jesus is setting the stage for all of that at the beginning of John chapter 13, before he goes into this very practical, very visible act of washing the apostles' feet. And that's the part that all of us want to grab hold of. We have seen it done at camps. We've seen it done in church services, Bible studies, all kinds of different places where people wash the feet of another person, believing that by doing so, we are following the same pattern of Jesus, and we are in humbly serving other people, getting as low as we possibly can in washing their feet. But there is more to it than that. There really is. There's deeper teaching, so deep that Peter would say, hold it. I don't get this. You are about to do something for me that a slave should do, and I am not going to allow you, God of the universe, to wash my feet. I will not allow you, creator of all that there is, to humble yourself and kneel before me and wash my feet. That's not going to happen, Lord. And Jesus says, oh, it is. And it has to happen, Peter. You don't understand. That is such a telling statement. Peter, you don't understand, but you will. It's going to take some time, but you will. This is all going to make sense. Friends, listen to this. When you come to know Christ, you're going to come to know him in salvation and in grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. 
but you are not going to come to complete understanding of everything in the Bible within a few days. You may actually sit down and read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you're still not going to understand everything that you need to understand. It takes a while. Peter, the tip of the spear of the apostles, is looking at something Jesus is doing, and he is so confounded by it that he is actually arguing with Jesus about it, saying, oh no, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus pointed out what I just said. You don't understand yet, but you're going to. I have been studying the Bible for as long as I can remember beyond that. You've heard me say that I was in the nursery the week after I was born in church. I was taught the Bible in nursery when I was, I was an infant. I've been a student of the Bible since I was probably 15 years old, which means that I have been studying it for 35 years and things are falling into place for me on a daily basis as I am reading things. That's the way it works. The Bible is living and active. We are continually learning We are continually growing in it. So don't think that you're going to get to a place where everything is just going to make sense to you instantly. It isn't like that. And that's what Jesus was teaching Peter. You don't understand right now, but you give this some time and you will. Because here's what he really wanted him to understand. This act of foot washing was so much deeper than getting the dust off of their feet. The act of a servant. It was actually deep theology that Jesus was teaching them that is tied all the way back to the Old Testament. And then it comes into the New Covenant in a very powerful, personal way that we might be able to understand it from the moment we first experience until we start helping other people experience it. Now here's what I'm talking about. Keep your finger in John chapter 13, but let's go to the book of Exodus together. Exodus chapter 29, verse 4. Aaron was the first high priest of the Hebrew people. Now I say that, he is the first high priest of the Hebrew people after the Exodus. We know in the book of Genesis there were some other high priests and they're really quite confusing. But Aaron and his sons established the priesthood under God's direction. In chapter 29, verse 4, this is what we read. Exodus 29, verse 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. When it was time to establish the priesthood, God said, I want you to bring Aaron and all of his boys right here to the entrance of the tent of meeting where I am at, where people come to meet with me. You bring them here to the tabernacle, this roving temple of the Lord, and you wash them. You take their clothes off and you wash them. And then if we were to go on in chapter 29, we would find out that after that washing, they were to put the robes of the priesthood on them because they were now going to serve in the role of priest, being God's voice on the earth to God's people. They were his representatives. They were the ones that were going to help communicate the things of the Lord. And God said, all of that's going to begin with this initial washing. By all accounts, that was a one-time event, a singular event. It was never happening again. It only happened that one time. But then interestingly enough, in chapter 30 of the book of Exodus, there is something added to it. Let's go to chapter 30, verse 17. Verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. 
when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Now they go through this singular event of washing and then they have the robes of the priesthood placed on them and they begin serving in that capacity. But God says, now I want you to build a basin and I want you to put that inside the tent of meeting and I want you to fill it with water. And every time Aaron or one of his sons, one of the priests comes in here, they are to wash their hands and wash their feet before they approach the altar, before they go there to sacrifice on their behalf or anyone else's behalf, before they go there to sacrifice meat that would be carried out, they are to wash their hands and wash their feet. On the surface, that could sound like nothing but a sanitary ritual, something that mothers are very proud of. Before you touch the meat, wash your hands. Moms, how many of you have over and over and over said to your children, go wash your hands? It would sound like that same type of teaching, but it is deeper than that. And we find it in John chapter 13 when Peter says, then you're going to have to wash my whole body. And Jesus says to him, that's not necessary. You're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. Still kind of confusing? Shake your head yes if it's still kind of confusing. Then let's apply it. Here's the way this works. When we are baptized into Christ... We are going through that same singular event that the priest went through in Exodus chapter 29. The Bible would say this in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, after Peter had preached an amazing message at Pentecost and people would come up to him and say, what must we do then to be saved? This is what he said. Peter said to them, verse 38 chapter 2, Repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism by immersion is a one-time singular event that we go into carrying with us all of the sins of our past, and it is there that we are washed clean of those sins. We receive forgiveness, Acts 2.38 just said it, forgiveness for our sins, and we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are singular events. We have been forgiven of our sin, and we have received the Holy Spirit. Romans would actually teach us that when we are baptized, we are putting on Christ. We are changing our clothes. We are becoming not only His child, but also His representative in all of the world. Peter teaches in his first book a concept called the priesthood of all believers. Every Christian is a priest. Every Christian is a representative of God. If you have been immersed into Christ, you have put on Christ. And it becomes your job to represent Him. That is that singular washing of Exodus chapter 29. But then there's this basin, this place where our hands and our feet have to get washed. And God was so pointed about it that he would actually say to Moses, that you tell Aaron and you tell all of his boys that they have to do this every time they come in here so that they won't die. You make sure that they wash their hands and their feet and they don't approach that altar carrying with them all the dirt of the world. You make sure that they wash their hands and their feet. The rest of their body is clean, but wash their hands and feet because death is the consequence of not. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? So now we have a basin that's been given to us where we can wash our hands and our feet after that singular event of baptism by immersion. That basin 
is the Lord's Supper. It was given to us as a place where we could wash our hands and our feet. Because whether you believe this or not, if you have been immersed into Christ, you're still going to sin. You're still going to mess up. There are still going to be mistakes. Now, I want to make sure that you're not just hearing that from me. So let me ask a couple of questions, and these are not rhetorical. I'm hoping that you'll respond. How many of you remember the moment when you were baptized into Christ? And how many of you have sinned since? Thank you. So we, not since, you sat down right there. Good deal. So we have this basin given to us by God to wash our hands and our feet. It's called communion, the Lord's Supper given to us as often as we approach it to take care of the dirt of the world. Jesus would say to Peter, you're already clean. You don't have to go through the singular event again, but you've got some dirt you need to take care of. You need to wash your hands and your feet. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians about communion. Now, if you have been here long, you've heard these read when we come to the Lord's table. If you grew up in church, these are familiar words as well. Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here's where the cleansing part comes. That was the priesthood of all believers. Now listen to the basin part of the passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's the basin part of communion. When we come into the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to get rid of the sins that have been a part of our life since the last time we took the Lord's Supper. Wash your hands. Wash your feet. You've been through the singular event and God gave us this other part that allows us to pursue what the Bible refers to as holiness, becoming more like Christ. I am washing away the non-Jesus parts of my life, but I'm allowing the blood of Jesus to do the washing. That's what that basin is full of. It is full of the blood of Jesus Christ and it washes away all of those things that keep us distant from the Lord. One of the questions that we get asked on a regular basis So what are we supposed to do during communion? After the cup has been passed and we're holding on to it, what are we supposed to do? Well, certainly we are to remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's exactly what the Bible teaches us to do. But then you can take it deeper and say, what is standing between me and Jesus right now? What do I need him to wash away? And we can wash our hands and wash our feet and pursue holiness Pursue being like Christ. That's why he was telling Peter, Jesus was, you're not going to understand all of this right now. It's going to take some time. But as it comes together for you, I want you to hold on to it. Because this lesson is going to begin to grow. And it's going to become something greater in your life that you will understand everything that's going on here. 
You've already been washed in the singular event. I want you to remember what it means to take care of the rest. Interestingly enough, Jesus was teaching them to help other people understand it too. Now, what I've done for you, I want you to do for other people. I want you to teach them the same lesson. And that's where things actually get deeper within this passage in John chapter 13 because there is more for us to learn. If you're following us all the way through this, you're seeing a pattern develop. The first part of the passage is dealing with the deity of Christ. And then the deity of Christ, the deity of God himself, kneels before humanity. That's humility. In its best, that's humility. God himself was kneeling down and showing that I can take care of this for you. I will wash your feet. I will do this. And Peter's saying, I don't get it. But Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. Whether you get it or not, it's going to happen. And I have to humble myself to do it. And so will you. When it comes time for you to do this for other people, it will require humility. So Jesus is teaching it. He is modeling it that we might have an example to learn from. Which, by the way, humility is one of the most difficult personal characteristics for people in our world today to grab hold of. A fellow named Andrew Murray has said that humility is the soil in which grace is firmly rooted. That's pretty good. Humility is the soil in which grace is firmly rooted. He would go on to say that most human failures are tied to a lack of humility. That's pretty good teaching as well. That's how difficult humility is for us. And so Jesus is modeling it right here. He is teaching it. The Bible would say in James chapter 4, verse 10, that if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up. Then once we get through that part of the process, we move into the holiness part. And that's what Jesus was teaching Peter. He was showing him that if you're going to be my representative on this earth and you are going to put me on and you're going to go out and be my voice, it is going to require a pursuit of holiness that happens first in the singular act and then in the ongoing basin of washing away the sin. So we go from humility to holiness. And then there's this really interesting stop at the end of it. Let me show it to you. We're going to pick up in John 13 again, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, verse 17, dial in, listen close. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, verse 17, let's go back to it. You can take that word blessed and pull it off of your page and highlight it, make it stand out, make it jump out at you. In the margin of my Bible, I have written the word that you can replace the word blessed with that you might better understand what he's saying. In the Greek language, there are few times where the word blessed or blessed is used synonymously with the word happy in Greek. This is one of them. 
So let's take the word blessed out and plug in the word happy. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. It's the key to happiness. Humility followed by holiness leads to happiness. People spend all kinds of time and money and energy and effort to try to find exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. They want to be happy. Now, you have to understand, we're not talking about the kind of happiness that you find when you buy a new rifle. This isn't the kind of happiness that you find when you buy a new truck. This isn't the happiness of a new house. This is not temporary happiness. This isn't just happiness that puts a smile on your face for a few moments and then it's gone. This is the happiness of the heart that we might describe as joy. I have found purpose in life. I have found meaning. I have found direction. I have found something greater than myself. Happy are you if you do them. If you understand humility and you understand holiness, it will lead to happiness and a happiness that will last eternally. That's what Jesus was teaching. Now, if you take all of that and you boil it down, here's what you really discover. That what Jesus was teaching in John chapter 13 is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. And if you can figure those two things out in such a way that you are willing to wash the feet of other people, to humble yourself in holiness, that you might really be happy, then you have figured out the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This type of happiness, by the way, is modeled by God himself. Let's go to the book of 1 Timothy as we're wrapping things up. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you're going to see that same exact word one more time. We'll start in verse 8 to get to where we need to be in verse 11. 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed, there's the word God, with which I have been entrusted. That's the same word, the happy God. We can have such an intimate relationship with Him that the happiness that God experiences in seeing us come to know Him is the same happiness that we can experience when we see other people do the same thing, come to know Him. It's purpose. It's happiness. It's meaning beyond ourselves. That's the point of washing feet, that we might discover that type of relationship with God where He will love us to the end and beyond. The end for Jesus is never because he loves us through this life and all through eternity. He will love us to the end. I want to leave you with one last thought as we close. There were 12 apostles present when Jesus washed their feet. Listen again. There were 12 apostles present when Jesus washed their feet. Let's do that one more time because I want it to sink in. There were 12 apostles present when Jesus washed their feet. By all implication, he washed all 24 feet. All 12 of them had their feet washed by him. 
Here's why that is so significant. Judas was there. He's the one that would betray Jesus. Jesus shared the prophecy with them. He was one of them, chosen by Jesus. Now you could argue, and it's a good one, that when he chose Judas, he knew what the end would be. He knew what Judas would do. Yet he traveled with him for three years. He welcomed him into his life. And Judas would be the greatest offender of Jesus the world would ever know. We would hold him forward that way over and over and over again. But Jesus washed his feet. I had this great part of the message put together about real offenses and perceived offenses, and I don't have enough time to go through it. The offense of Judas towards Jesus was very real. The betrayal was very real. We have experienced some real betrayal, but we have also experienced perceived betrayal. And in just perceived betrayal, we would cast people out of our lives. We would cast them out of the church. We would cast them out of relationship with the Lord because we don't want to do life with them. We don't want to share our church with them. We don't want to share our home with them. We don't want to share heaven for some people because we think they've hurt us that desperately. But Judas was there and Jesus washed his feet. So wouldn't it make sense that we should do the same for those that have hurt us real or perceived, we should wash their feet. Because here's the truth. Jesus said, now what I have done for you, you go and do for others. You go and teach them. You model it. You do it for them. That's what leads to that blessing of happiness. That's what takes away the roots of bitterness that grow within us. That's what keeps us in relationship with other people. It's the ability to wash their feet even when they've let us down and hurt us, disappointed us, offended us, whatever the case might be, if we can wash their feet, we can continue to model Christ. We can continue to wear the robes of the priest. We can make sure nothing stands between us and that responsibility. That's what Jesus was modeling. There's a lot to this story. More than just the humility of it, there is a lot to this story. Holiness, happiness, it's all there. We just have to pay attention to it. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, I can honestly say that I bring no accusation against Peter because in the same situation, I know I'd have done the same. Not understanding everything that you wanted me to. Father, I'm guilty of that on a regular basis. I'm thankful that in your patience you continue to reveal yourself and your goodness to me and to all of your children. Father, thank you for that patience. Thank you for the freedom to mess it up from time to time and come back to the basin and wash our hands and our feet so that we can stand before you holy and blameless, children of God. Thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that we'll do it. I pray that we will hear the message that you have for us, and we'll do it. I pray, Lord, that the things that stand in our way will be removed so that we can just do what you tell us to do and experience the happiness that you have for us. 
Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.